Welcome, dear friends and damn givers, to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. I'm your host, Nick LaPara, and this is the show you come to when you want to hear from people who are giving a damn and making the world a much better place in so many unique and meaningful ways. Thank you for hitting play. Thank you for showing up this week, and thank you most of all for joining us on this journey toward leaving the planet much better than we found it. One hundred and one years ago today, on May 31, 1921, the Tulsa Race Massacre happened, and my guest today knows more about the Tulsa Race Massacre than maybe anyone else on the planet right now. Scott Ellsworth joins me to give us an in-depth look at what happened between May 31 and June 1 in Tulsa, Oklahoma in 1921 that left between 100 and 300 people dead over 800 more injured, 35 city blocks completely destroyed, and over 1,000 homes and businesses that were looted, burned, and bombed from the air. In less than 24 hours, Black Wall Street was wiped off the planet and erased from our history textbooks. The reason you may not know all that much about the worst single incident of racial violence in American history is very intentional. They didn't want you to know about it. They don't want you to know about it. Thankfully, Scott Ellsworth started seeking the truth over four decades ago, and we still today are reaping the benefits of his work. His most recent book is called The Groundbreaking, An American City and Its Search for Justice. This is a must-read book. I'm incredibly serious when I say that. Get it as soon as you possibly can. Beto O'Rourke called this book heartbreaking, and inspiring. And one of my heroes, Reverend Dr. William J. Barber, who is the co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign and one of the biggest damn givers out there, said of this book, quote, Scott Ellsworth not only tells the gripping story of one of America's worst racial atrocities, but shows us how we can uncover our past and come to grips with our future. His literally groundbreaking research and engaging prose pulls us toward the call of justice today. Now, I can't top Reverend Barber's endorsement, so with that, I say let's get right into this conversation, shall we? Before we begin, as always, a quick reminder that you can email me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. You can ask questions, recommend future guests, tell me how much you love or hate this show, anything really. I just love hearing from you. And one more thing before we begin. I'm releasing two podcast episodes this week. Later this week, be on the lookout for a conversation I had with an amazing young woman, 13-year-old Nayara Taminga, after I saw a video of her speaking truth to power at a city commissioner meeting in Grand Rapids, Michigan, after 26-year-old refugee from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Patrick Leoya, was fatally shot in the back of the head by Officer Christopher Schur of the Grand Rapids Police Department in April. The clip of her speaking at that meeting is amazing, so I shared it on social media on May 20, and since then, it has had millions of views, it has had tens of thousands of comments, tens of thousands of shares, so I tracked Nayara down and had an inspiring conversation with her that you'll get to listen to later this week, so be on the lookout for that. And now... Let's get right into my conversation with the amazing Scott Ellsworth. Let's go. 
Scott Ellsworth. Welcome to the Let's Give a Damn podcast. Thanks, Nick. It's great to be here. I'm thrilled about this. Not a, not necessarily about the 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 events that we're going to talk about because those were horrific, but I'm thrilled because you've written something that well, not just now, even as 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 long ago as 39, 40 years ago, you started writing about this event and really bringing yeah, these events to light and bringing truth uh, to light as well. Things that we weren't thinking about as a society, things that had been long covered up. And so I've been looking forward to this. I think we first got in touch, I don't know, nine. It was it was after this book came out a couple months right. after and after the anniversary, which is coming up here in a few days. This podcast conversation will release on May 31. Um, and so I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. We thought I thought about doing it back then. And I was like, no, I really want to wait until it is the anniversary again. I guess this is uh, 101 years yeah. uh, this year. And so thank you for your patience, because I know we talked about it doing it back then. And thanks for keeping in touch. And I'm so excited to speak with you today. Um, before we begin, however, I feel like it would be wrong to not address a couple other things that are happening currently in our country. Sure. Horrific, horrific, horrific and preventable uh, mass shootings in Buffalo, in Uvalde, Texas, um, 19 children murdered, two teachers murdered, 17 or 18 more injured. You know, I was just reading an account this morning and I was just just weeping over my desk as I read about Maya, one of the students who survived, who had to smear her dead friend's blood all over her and play dead for an hour to survive. Uh, That's one account of dozens that are being told right now, uh, both from, you know, grieving parents of dead children and these little children that have just survived something that no one of any age should ever have to go to. And again, these are preventable things that are, that our country refuses to look in the face and make the right decision. So as someone who has studied uh, racism and has studied uh, history so deeply and has studied violence and violence particularly against marginalized groups of people and as just a human who obviously cares and feels, how are you doing and how are you processing through the events of the last few weeks? Well, I, I'm just, you know, I, it's it's horrifying and it's sickening. And the reality is, is this can be addressed. The, uh, you know, I'm a parent. My wife and I have, you know, twin sons. So I know that fear. Um, you know, I was in actually in Dallas uh, when this event happened and I mm. was at a convention and I, you know, got into a, an argument with a, uh, a law enforcement officer from Pasadena, Texas, who who was a mother who had a, had a, uh, um, a, a child in school, and she sort of mentioned, well, she was sort of worried about this. But when I pressed her on it, it was like, well, you know, these, you know, there's never going to be any change. There's never going to be anything that can happen. But here's the reality. Um, you know, first of all, um, you know, we are in such, we are so divided as a nation that trying to come to grips with real facts can be very difficult to do because people are in their silos and they believe this and that. But um, here are, here are just a couple of things that are relevant. First of all, 
nobody's going to get rid of guns in America. That's a given. There are more guns than people. It's just not going to happen. Um, but secondly, you know, when the Second Amendment, whatever it actually means, was created, people had muskets and they took maybe a minute to reload a musket. Um, you know, we now live in an era and assault weapons had been banned during the Reagan administration. So this is relatively recent. These guns have no other purpose than killing people. They are not out there to um, for hunting. You don't go hunting with an AR-15, any of that stuff. Obviously, there's going to be some larger questions that have to be addressed later on. But the idea that, that we should allow people to have assault weapons is just madness. That doesn't mean you're attacking every single gun under owner's rights. Nope. You know, and it, it's just ridiculous and absurd. And of course, what happens is, is that the opposition is, oh, this is a mental health issue, or this is a this and that. I mean, I had people talking, this woman I spoke to, this officer, talked about the idea of having uh, teachers armed. I said, you want your child's kindergarten teacher to be armed? Like, are you out of your mind? And, uh, you know, this is just something that just has to be done. We need to bore in on the issue of banning the further sale of assault rifles, of ammunition clips for them. We just need to address that right now. Either that or, or, or then, then call it open. Why don't we allow people to have uh, machine guns or nuclear right. weapons or right. cannons or whatnot? Where do you draw the line? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. there is no reason for these things to be available to the general public except to kill other people. There should have been so many red flags pop up when a on on or around his 18th birthday he purchases over $2000 worth of again these are not it's not a handgun for protection it's clearly not something he's going to go hunt with he buys two AR15s hundreds of rounds of ammunition and not one red flag is raised and he's able to just do it before he's able to drink a beer legally um yeah, the conversations, th this one, as a parent, my, my children are younger than yours. Mine are seven, nine, and 10. So this one hit extra hard because I have almost all of those children that were murdered are 10 years old, were 10 years old. And I have a 10-year-old that I love to the moon and back. And I just can't imagine what I would do if, uh, if I, I can't imagine what she would do if she were put in that situation. But the reality is that's, what's so hard. You, 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 you nailed it, which is, I don't know the way forward because we are so divided. Um, in, in the, 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 the div divisive rhetoric has exponentially grown in the, since 2015, when a certain someone came on the scene, not that there weren't divisions before, but it is so much more, uh, there's so much more vitriol and so much more hatred and so much more just not listening to facts, right? That these politicians want to once again, use the mental health and fatherlessness and video games, bullshit, like theory. What? So in the UK, uh, or in Scotland or in Finland where these things don't exist, they don't have you mean every home has a father and they don't have mental health crisis and the kids aren't playing video games? It's just nonsensical. What we do have are millions more guns than we do humans. And I actually was just, I actually just saw an interview done. Uh, I think it was someone on the Trevor Noah show. They always do these great interviews, very intriguing, very comedic, but they went to Switzerland where, cause you always think of these countries that don't have, 
you know, you look at Australia, these countries that don't have mass shootings and well, they just don't have a lot of guns, right? Well, Switzerland is 8 million people, 2 million guns. That's a lot of guns. Yeah. That's 20. And so how do they do it? They don't have mass shootings. And it's about, you know, education and proper training. And obviously there's, there's just, there's so much more common sense gun laws there. So I'm hoping, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how you feel. I typically, tr I, I really go hard after the hopeful side of things because I mean, what do we have if we don't have hope? But this one left me hopeless, Scott. Like this one, the the immediate responses from these politicians, and they're the people that can actually make the change happen, right? Like you and I, we can write, you know, we can start petitions and do fundraisers and all these things, but it's laws. It comes down to laws and lawmakers not doing their job. And so it's been a hard, it's been a hard week. It's been hard, but you know what I remind people, and this is also part of the tactic. Oh, it'll never change. You can never do anything, stuff like that. Look. Um, up until the end of the 18th century, every single human society ever known, ever existing, had a monarch. They had a king or a queen. That was it. That was the way people lived. I mean, for as long as humans have been around or as long as we know, thousands and thousands of years. And then in 1776, suddenly there's this new country that says we're not going to have a king. And in 1789, there's another country that beheads its king and does that. We don't have any kings that are that really have any power today, except in like five countries, stuff like that. There are still some kings that are out there, but human societies can change. Huge things that were just impossible to dream can happen. I remember uh, talking to my dad who, um, you know, he had worked in the South. He was a petroleum geologist and whatnot. And he told me later, years later, that when the civil rights movement, he was not a Southerner. I mean, he was Southern born, but wasn't raised there. Sure. But when he when he grew up, when he, when he watched the civil, civil rights movement start to unfold in the South, he said, there's no way that, that'll ever change. There's no mm. way that'll ever happen. And change happens. So I think we have to remind ourselves that change happens. We have to think about how to organize ourselves. And we have to get to work. I mean, you know, you can take simply banning an assault rifle as a litmus test. Either you're for it or you're against it. Let's start with that. Let's start with looking and seeing who is getting money from those who, and do it and expose it and go. So I'm, you know, I'm mad and I'm angry. And, um, but, but I think the possibility for change is there. Well, I'm grateful for that encouragement as someone who is a few years, my senior, someone who has seen a lot yeah, more, more history than few, happen. Probably. Well, I'll, I, you know, so, someone who has seen so much history happen um, I receive that and I, I, I want to learn. I'm trying with everything in me to be more patient. The, the hard thing about being human, right? Is that so many of the things that we fight for, this is one of the, the, the coolest and the best, but also one of the hardest things to reckon with is that if, if we do our, if we live life well, if we live a meaningful life and if we do life correctly, then the changes that we fight for the things we advocate for might not happen until we're gone, sure. right? That's history. And that hurts a little bit because you kind of want to see the fruits of your labor, right? Like I love seeing my kids grow up. I love seeing them come into their own. And it, it's really cool to see that, right? Or my career as it flourishes. I love seeing those things. But in reality, hopefully assault weapons in this case are banned, you know, very, very soon. 
hopefully this is the, the event that will spur that to happen. But that is one of the hard things. But again, it's also one of the unique things because we don't sure. get to see the fruits of our labor sometimes. And the next generation will reap our, the benefits of our work. And that is life. That's the beautiful thing about life. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. And we continue obviously not just to offer our thoughts and prayers, but to actually, as you pointed out, we need to get to work. We need to get to work. I know you live in Ann Arbor, Michigan now mm -hmm. because of your, your work as a lecturer, professor, so on and so forth, but you were born and raised, and we're going to talk a lot in this conversation about Tulsa, Oklahoma. Talk about your upbringing. Um, cause I know that you were, okay. So you were born in the fifties, correct? If right. my math is correct. So this is 30 plus years after the Tulsa race massacre, which again, we're going to get to here in this conversation. Talk about your upbringing, your family, the environment, how it felt, um, and even get into, if you can, some of the people, places, and things that influenced you during your childhood being born and raised in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Sure, I'd be happy to. So, yes, yeah, so I was born uh, in Tulsa you know, on St. Patrick's Day in 1954 uh, to a middle-class family. Uh, I was the third child. I had an older brother and sister. Um, my dad had been born in Virginia, but he had, he had been raised in um, – uh, in Wisconsin and comes from a, you know, a, an old line, uh, you know, uh, and we can trace our ancestry to early New England settlers, all that kind of stuff on his side. Uh, my mother was the daughter of Norwegian immigrants and she was born in Saskatchewan, you know, on the way from Norway to, of course, they didn't go to Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, so they went to Minnesota. And, uh, she grew up in a, in a working class family in Minneapolis. She was the uh, um, first member of her family to, I'm sure, graduate not only from, I mean, from, from elementary school, junior high, high school. And she went on to uh, graduate from uh, the University of Minnesota, which was the proudest moment in her parents' lives. My dad was also uh, well-educated. He grew up without a father, but uh, went to the University of, of, uh, of uh, Wisconsin and then got a PhD in geology from Stanford in the 1930s. So they were both, you know, not from Oklahoma. And uh, I grew up in, a, in an all-white environment, uh, an all-white neighborhood. Um, my um, across-the-street neighbor, who I loved dearly, an elderly woman, um, she had a flagpole in her front yard. And rather than fly the American flag, on national holidays, she flew the Confederate battle flag because wow. she was a descendant of Jeb Stewart or, or whatnot, uh, attended all white schools, even though I was born two months, be two months before the Brown decision, I didn't have a black classmate until I was in high school. Um, you know, uh, all white church and whatnot. Um, aside from, you know, what we called garbage men, which would be called sanitation workers. I never saw a black person, anywhere, you know, in my neighborhood whatsoever. Um, you know, but even as, as a kid, I had heard, even as a 10 and 11 year old, I'd heard um, adults, maybe neighbors, sort of talk about this Tulsa race riot thing or mention it. And, but whenever they would, um, you know, when a kid walked into the room, they would change the subject or lower their voices. That of course, piqued my interest. And then I heard what would be sort of like urban legends of bodies floating down the Arkansas River. My house was, you know, six houses from the river or, 
machine guns and airplanes, but you really couldn't find out anything about it. Um, but then the summer that I turned 12, this is 1966, I was downtown with a couple of my running buddies. We would go downtown and get into all sorts of mischief. And we'd often end up at this beautiful brand new downtown public library. And because it had air conditioning and we would play records and go up and down the elevators and stuff like that. And one day we walked in and we saw something we had never seen before, which was a microfilm reader. And we were automatically determined we were going to use that. So we go over there and we're fiddling with the knobs and stuff. And this uh, librarian comes marching over. And but she was really brilliant because rather than shoo us away, she taught us how to use it properly. You know, there's a saying that if you want something done, get a sixth grader to do it. And it's really kind of true because they're <laughs> they're ready to take charge and do right. stuff. So, you know, there were all the, there were these metal cabinets that had these rolls of microfilm right there. And they were all of old old issues of Tulsa's daily newspapers. Now, somehow I knew that this event at this point was June 1921. So the first reel we put into this machine reader is the June 1st uh, Tulsa Tribune. And we're just gobsmacked. I mean, there are these giant headlines. Here we are in peaceful Tulsa. You know, these giant headlines, you know, 175 killed in race riot, martial law, all this stuff. And, you know, we didn't have the wherewithal to really understand this as 12-year-olds or to read the, the language of the day and all that. But I knew at that point that my city had a skeleton in the closet that it didn't want to talk about. And I think that was really sort of the beginning of my interest. Yeah, that's wild that you encountered that at such a young age, right? Yeah. It wasn't when you were in college or, you know, had begun your career as a, as again, as a historian, lecturer, so on and so forth. Um, 12 years old is really young to encounter that, but somehow, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm interested in what the environment was around you because you hadn't been, uh, I don't know, infected by all the whiteness so much so that you ignored, like somehow you had to yeah, you had to. Well, you had, I, I, you had the wherewithal to like see this and and feel it, like feel everything that you were reading. Well, part of it as well was you know, um, you know, we would watch the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite every yeah. night, you know, and you know, since I had been you know eight, you know, or something, you know, the civil rights movement had unfolded on television, so you know, I knew there were things in Birmingham, I knew that there were things in Selma, and all of that. Going on similarly, the Vietnam War had started to heat up. So I knew that there was a larger world elsewhere. And my parents were, they had lived in New York City. They, they were worldly educated people. And, uh, you know, uh, we were very patriotic as a family. I still am very patriotic. But there was a sense that these larger things were important, even though they might not be right in front of us. And uh, so I think that that the news was important. And I knew that that black people could make history. And so maybe that was one thing that, that appealed to me, but I, but part of it was that whole hidden, hidden narrative. And then sort of, I pick up a little bit, you know, in later years, not a lot. Um, you know, when, uh, when I, in, in, when I entered high school in downtown Tulsa Central High School, this was a very well integrated school. And uh, we had racial violence and uh, fist fights in the hall, all this kind of stuff. And um, 
you know, when I started to see something else, I was a swimmer and, and the swim team at Central, not surprisingly, was all white. And we had a white coach, uh, uh, my first coach, I, I hasten to add. And uh, during the middle of these fights going on, racial violence going on in high school, at practice, he said, well, boys, you know, I don't want you looking for trouble, but if it comes your way, I don't want you backing down. And basically, he's telling us to fight for the white race. And then when the everything finally calmed down, I saw, this is in the fall of 1969, I saw how black students were punished more than white students were. That started to open my eyes a little bit. And then the, uh, uh, the I guess it's the following summer, um, I worked one summer at a local International House of Pancakes as a busboy. And uh, there were some uh, black cooks, a couple other black dishwashers. And I learned a little more about the what we called the race ride in those days, but but not a lot. But it wasn't until college that um, I really started to look into it. Yeah, it's a great reminder of the era that you grew up in, right? Because there was no social media, obviously, no internet, no cell phones. Right. And so you had very few channels of information coming. And I'm sure, uh, I'm, I think it's a given that attention span and focus was a lot better back then, right? Because you did have limited, you know, means of information coming at you. So you had to pay attention, right? So whether it's the, you know, the evening news with Walter Cronkite or whatever, like you're paying attention more than now where we, you know, these, these iPhones and stuff, like so much information coming that it just feels so overwhelming. Oh, absolutely. And, and the national news was 30 minutes. That was it. You know, if you missed it, you missed it. You can't record it. You can't watch it later. It was something that was certainly happening. Absolutely. When So what, at what point did you get interested in becoming an academic? Where did that happen? During college, after college? At what point did you decide to pursue this? Well, and I probably, I hate to say this, but I, I'm not a very good academic. So, <laughs> um, you know, in fact, I've spent most of my career avoiding academia. Uh, I've been very lucky. So, um, and we'll talk about sort of digging into the history of the massacre, but um, you know, I ended up, uh, when I was undergraduate, I went to graduate school at Duke and um, was a member of the oral history program. But I I realized uh, while I was supposed to be writing my dissertation and it's, I was working in Washington, D.C. at this point, and I realized early I really didn't want to be a college professor. So I worked at the Smithsonian for, I, I taught briefly one year, then I was at the Smithsonian for 10 years at the American History Museum. Um, I started doing journalism and film work and a lot of public history uh, through Tulsa. So it's really just been in the last, um, you know, 14 years or so that I've been very fortunate teaching here at the University of Michigan. I'm a lecturer um, and, um, uh, you know, it, it's been great. I, I've enjoyed that. But I, you know, but I write books is what I do. And um so I'm, I'm not, I've never written for an academic audience. Most professors write for other professors. I've always written for regular folks and I'm continuing to do that. So yeah, I mean, I'm that's, an asterisk academic, I would say. But I'm, I'm grateful for that because I, and many people are grateful for that because you like, at some point we're going to talk about the, the process of writing a book, like the groundbreaking, right? Because it's, you're not writing a self-help book. You're not writing, you know, a nonfiction book book where you can, or rather a fiction book where you can just like right. make shit up, right? Like you're making a world up. Right. This is history. And so it takes 
so much time and energy and fact checking all that. And so you've done work here. And then again, so brilliantly put it in a way that common people, not academics, can read it and, and, and learn about this thing that we should all know so much about. And so, yeah, I guess I'm, I'm grateful for your version of an academic that doesn't try to keep everything at the academic level. That's annoying to me. Cause it's like, I mean, you should be, more people should be using their brilliance and their, you know, propensity toward learning and studying and investigating to get the information out there rather than write one more academic, you know, jur- like right. entry into a journal that like nobody can understand. Right. Well, sure. You know, one thing I learned amongst many things, I, I really had a wonderful 10 years working at the Smithsonian at the National Museum of American History on the mall. And I did lots of different things for him. But one thing that I really learned made a huge impact on me was that the American people are really interested in history, in our history. But they're just not interested. They have no interest in the types of books that most college professors write. So what is what's happened is, um, and there was a time when college professors, some college professors would write books that were bestsellers, but it's been a long time. So our best popular historians are all journalists. And uh, so they tell a story. I mean, you know, David McCullough or, you know, whoever you want. Occasionally there'll be a Doris Kearns Goodwin or someone who's a college professor who will write a popular book, but our primary ones are not. And uh, so you have to learn how to tell a story, how to, how to capture a reader's interest. But if you're able to do that and, uh, and keep people turning the pages, you can teach them a lot of history as well. Yeah, that's beautiful. In a few minutes, I'm going to kind of let you loose and have you uh, tell the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre for those that are again, may have heard about it. I would guess that a lot of the people, young people that are listening to this podcast, uh, again, they, they know conceptually about it, but they don't know if you said the words black wall street, uh, they would have no idea what that means. And so I'm going to kind of let you loose to kind of tell the story. But before we get there, let's talk about the actual, you know, book that you wrote released, uh, a year and a couple weeks ago, May 18, yeah. uh, last year for the centennial of, you know, since the massacre, but it's, this is not your first journey into writing about the Tulsa race massacre back in 1982, a year before I was born, you wrote death in a promised land, the Tulsa race of Tulsa race, right. Of 1921. Talk about that book briefly. And then kind of what are the differences between that book and what you've so brilliantly done here in the groundbreaking? So, um, so we pick up for me, the Tulsa race massacre story again in college. So I go to, uh, a very small college out in Portland, Oregon, Reed College, where incidentally I made my big mistake because this is a tiny school. Where I knew all of my classmates. I knew all the professors, all that. And uh, there was a guy in my freshman class named Steve who was really interested in computers. And I didn't drop out with Steve Jobs and go and found Apple Computer with him. Wow. And, uh, um, anyway, which I some of my classmates did. So, um, Anyway, so I became a history major, and at our college, you had to write a senior thesis, which was like a master's thesis. It was a real big deal. And so I, here it is, junior year, and I'm trying to think about what to write about. And I thought, well, what about that Tulsa race riot thing? And uh, so um, I decide that's what I'm going to do. So I spent the summer between my junior and senior year in Tulsa um, uh, researching the massacre and uh my parents had had retired to California, so I had to find a, I had to get an apartment. 
I had to get a job to have an apartment, all that stuff. And to make a long story short, um, I just couldn't find anything. I mean, uh, the records had been, you know, destroyed, lost, suppressed. Articles had been cut out of newspapers, blah, 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 blah. I had a great problem until the end of the summer when I ended up doing my first oral history interview at all with an elderly man who had been 16 at the time, the massacre named W.D. Williams, Bill Williams. And he turned out to be really the key in breaking open how this massacre happened. And um, then I went off to graduate school at, at Duke and I finally got my advisor to read my undergraduate thesis. It took about two years. And he said, oh my God, there's a book in this. So they, you know, came up with some money. I spent a second summer back in Tulsa, summer of 1978. The Mr. Williams interview introduced me to other elderly African-American survivors who had, who had never been interviewed before by anyone, who in fact never even told their family members what had happened. They were all adults in 1921. And it's really because of them and then other research I was able to put together that story. So in 1982, I published Death in a Promised Land, um, which is the first comprehensive history of the massacre. Um, I had, uh, um, I'd originally, you know, uh, written to the University of Oklahoma Press, uh, you know, in my home state, thinking that's the most logical uh, press, but they wouldn't even look at the manuscript. And uh, um, out of fear, out of racism, I have no idea what, um, but, uh, Louisiana State University Press published it. They've kept it in print for 42 years, whatever it is. Uh, and it, it was a, a book I had to have footnotes because I knew I had to be able to establish why it happened. But it, it sort of had a life of its own, a slow life of its own. And uh, much different than this, this new book. Um, I'll, let me just tell you how that happened. So, yeah, please. Uh, so we're about two or three years ago. And... Uh, um, I was actually planning on writing a different, I knew that the centennial was coming up with the massacre. I assumed that I would be involved in it somehow, but I was thinking about something else. And uh, very briefly, um, when I was in the seventh grade, uh, one of my elementary school classmates and little league uh, teammates was murdered at a party. And uh, mm. this was just a horrific event that had a huge impact on me and our other teammates and things like that. Um, the, uh, the case was this, he came from a broken family, he had a couple older brothers who were a little wild. His mom is trying to hold it together. And his name is Jackie Gresham. And Jackie snuck out one night to go to a party. And at this party were some pedophiles. And one of them tried to assault Jackie in a bathroom. Jackie fought back and the guy killed him. Okay. So when this happened, this was an era where, the Tulsa papers didn't even talk about sexual abuse. I don't even think the word rape appeared in the Tulsa world or Tulsa Tribune, uh, certainly not pedophilia or even homosexuality. What was interesting is that our parents, and they were so wise with this, they said, this is going to be such a big event for these kids. We're just not going to hold anything back. And they explained everything to us. We're just 12. They explained to us, they said, we're not going to sugarcoat anything. And Jackie's death had always sort of haunted me in a way. So I was going back to Tulsa, thinking about writing about it, finding out what happened to his killer, maybe writing a book about how the 60s permissiveness crashed onto kind of deep, con deeply conservative middle America. And when that was happening, the uh, 
um, the mayor of Tulsa asked me to restart the search for the unmarked mass graves of massacre victims. I had begun that 20 years earlier and then it had been stopped. And so I'm now doing two things and my wonderful literary agent, David Larabelle, on a Friday, he said, what if you wrote a book both about your search for Jackie and his killer and also about the search for these bodies and all that? And I thought that was a weird idea, but I really like my agent a great deal. He's a brilliant man. And so I said, let me think about that. And by Saturday afternoon, I realized I have to write a book about how the massacre was covered up and how it was uncovered in part because if I don't do it, that story will never get saved. I was just one of the few people still around who knew it. So the you know book proposals for me normally take like months to put together. That came together basically in a week. I was uh, reunited with my uh, former editor at Little Brown, who's now the editor-in-chief at Dutton. Uh, and we went ahead with the book. And the book actually, um, it, it happened rather quickly. I um, We were all into quarantine. COVID had hit. Um, my twin sons, rather than starting their freshman year out in California, were in their bedrooms in Ann Arbor for a year. Uh, my wife is upstairs. We had a, a finished basement. So I just went down to the basement uh, for 10 months and uh, every day and I wrote the book. Wow. And it, it all came fairly quickly because this is stuff I knew quite well. And uh, so I put it together. And I have to tell you, Nick, that, you know, before the pandemic, it was a lot more impressive to tell people, well, I went to the basement for a year and wrote a book. Well, like, big deal. We've been stuck at home, too. But uh, anyway, so it, it happened quickly. Yeah, my uh, same here. My ADHD brain, you know, stuck in a house for <laughs> in my backyard in, in the shed out back for over a year was uh, I got more work done that year. I started more projects and got so many more things going because wh where else am I going to go? I can't make an excuse to go to this meeting and meet that person <laughs> and fly here and do that. If you could put a percentage on how people like, what am I trying to ask? How responsible are you for what we all know about the Tulsa race massacre between your work? I mean, cause again, you've been thinking about this since at 12 years old, and then you wrote this in 1982 and now 2021. And again, there's still so many people in this country that have little to no idea about what happened. They might know the name, but they, if you said, okay, keep going, they have no idea. So how responsible are you? Do you think, and don't be humble, be realistic yeah. about, because I just don't, I didn't, I didn't know about it until a few years ago and I'm in my late thirties. Well, I, obviously I play a role. I, I don't know how, I mean, and I play a, a, a an important role. Um, but you know, there, look, there are, um, the reason, I mean, there's a couple things. First of all, there's the reason we really know um, what happened is because there were a group of survivors who were willing to take a chance and talk to a stranger who's from the wrong side of the tracks and trust him and open up about what happened. Yeah. And these were people who'd really kept this story alive. So it's really because of them. I give them first credit, but there's, there's a lot of people on the way. There was a, uh, a, there's a gentleman by the name of Don Ross, who was a journalist, later became an Oklahoma state legislator, who has been, he, he sort of broke the taboo on the story within Tulsa's black community in the late 1960s. He's been a gigantic force with this, but also 
you know, there was, uh, it's not exactly serendipity, but again, hip, history happens. So, so look, Death in a Promised Land comes out, okay? So neither of Tulsa's white daily newspapers will review the book. For a while, it was the second most stolen book out of the Tulsa City-County Library System. At the end of the year, I would just send them a box of books to replace the ones that were stolen. Um, you know, and it slowly started to crack things open a little bit. But the event that changes everything happens in the spring of 1995 in Oklahoma City, the state capital, 100 miles away from Tulsa, um, which is the, the the bombing of the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, which, you know, in those pre-9-11 days was the most significant act of terrorism on American soil. It's huge. 89 people die. And, uh, you know, so uh, the Today Show, you know, which was the premier national morning news network show, flies its entire crew to Oklahoma City to broadcast live for a week. That's how big the story is. And um, and the Today Show's host was Bryant Gumbel, who was the first African-American network television host. So during that week, Don Ross, this this from Greenwood, from Tulsa, journal, former journalist, now state legislator, went up to Bryant Gumbel and said, as horrible as this bombing is, there's another story that's never received the attention it should. And in fact, um, there, there had only been one national news story on the Tulsa race massacre uh, from the 1920s until the 1990s, which was there was an op-ed in the Washington Post when Death and a Promise Land came out. But anyway, wow. uh, Ross says, Gumbel, you know, there's this other story that's never gotten the attention. And he gave Ross a copy of my book, Death and a Promise Land. And uh, a week or 10 days later, uh, Ross and I both get calls from a producer of the Today Show saying on the 75th anniversary of the massacre in 1996, the Today Show will do a story. That was a gigantic breakthrough. So they, you know, over, and so a lot of things happen. A Black Wall Street memorial is erected in Tulsa. So, you know, things are going on. The Today Show, they interview lots of survivors. They interview me. They gather footage and whatnot, and they're going to do this story. So about two weeks before, you know, the story's in the can a couple of weeks before the actual anniversary. And I thought, well, shoot, if we got the Today Show doing something, maybe I can leverage that to get other news organizations. So I got on the phone, and I got, in a, in a week, I got the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, the Associated Press, National Public Radio, I think UPI was still in business, all to agree to do stories. They all did. And the stories were big. We got front page above the crease in the Washington Post, got a three-quarter page story in the New York Times. And this was a big breakthrough in starting to get the story out. But the genius was by Don Ross, the state legislator. And what he did is he took all this press, he went to the Republican governor and state legislature and said, look, We've never had an official report about this event and whatnot, and he got them to agree to create a state commission on it, the Tulsa Race Riot Commission. But but Ross's larger goal was to try to win reparations, financial restitution for the 150 or so known survivors. And uh, I ended up getting hired by the commission to be their consultant. I thought, what can I do to make a contribution? And I thought, trying to find out how many people died and also trying to find these uh, unmarked mass graves would be the most important. I went to the survivor community. They told me to do this. The commission agreed to let, let us do it. And meanwhile, nobody paid any attention to the riot commission. Um, 
I think in all honesty, the governor and the legislators thought, let's give these largely black people a little bit of money. They can do their report and we'll ignore it. Um, Don Ross, on the other hand, had a thumb on the scale in terms of appointing the commissioners and he had a pro reparations commission. So then I start this work and I, we, and I get great help from all over the world, all these experts who, to change this whole uh, work. And we work very hard for two years. We interview 300 people. We identify wow. these locations and, but we had kept that quiet. But when that leaked out, that became national news again. So then 60 minutes came to Tulsa and, ABC News Nightline. So it's been a process along the way. Um, you know, certainly, I think uh, uh, the Watchmen series on HBO has been gigantic. Uh, um, when that first episode aired, I heard from people the next week in Shanghai and London and Stockholm all over. Why haven't we heard about this? So it's been a process. Um you know, but it's the story is out. Certainly, I mean, still a lot of people haven't heard it, but it's out. I mean, you, there are dozens of books on the Tulsa race massacre and quote Black Wall Street. Now, there's been lots of both LeBron James and Russell Westbrook helped to produce, you know, videos on, you know, yep. documentaries on it. You can buy Black Wall Street T-shirts on and on and on. So we, uh, the story is is has come out, although not everybody knows about it because it hasn't really uh, effectively been taught in textbooks or even in the academic literature for that matter. Well, I'm, I'm just so grateful and we're about to jump into the story, but I'm just so grateful that, you know, you gave credit right away to the survivors that were willing to speak, right. And tell their story. And I'm grateful to you. And I'm grateful to Don Ross and others that, you know, decades ago pushed for this because LeBron, uh, who is a young man in his own right, like wouldn't know, you know, he wouldn't be making these stories now and getting the word out and other people, these books, you know, may not have been written. So very grateful for your pioneering work in, you know, on this important, important story. Thank you. So let's, um, let's start. I mean, let's start. Tell, I, I would love for you to tell the story. Um, you can give as, as little or as much detail as you want, but like, obviously this happened in 1921, even start before that. Because again, the, the, what was Tulsa before that, the magic city and Black Wall Street, and it was such a thriving place. And so kind of take, give us some context for what it was before and take us through what happened on sure. this horrific, sure. horrific. I'll, I'll, try you know, to, I'll try to give a 20 minute version. So sounds good. The, uh, um, so I think the place to begin, first of all, is Tulsa itself. So um, they called Tulsa in Oklahoma, they called it the magic city in now you don't see it, and now you do. So in the year 1900, Tulsa wasn't even Tulsa. Tulsa, it was called Tulsi Town. It was a little, tiny, dusty, Muscogee Creek Indian and cowboy town. Oklahoma wasn't a state yet. It was Indian territory. And, uh, you know, so imagine a little couple storefronts out of a Western movie. Just a few hundred people there, nothing important. By 1921, there are 100,000 people living in Tulsa. There are 20-story skyscrapers, electric streetcars, movie palaces, waterworks, electric works, giant mansions, neighborhoods, all this stuff, people pouring into the city. And so the reason for that was oil, because in, in 1905, the richest small oil field in the world was discovered across the Arkansas River from Tulsa. So, and this is at a, at a moment when the energy economy of the developed world is going from coal to oil. 
And this is also a time when automobiles are being developed. So if you can imagine like a little tiny Saudi Arabia discovered right smack dab in the middle of the lower 48 states, that's what happened. So everybody pours into Tulsa, money pours into Tulsa as well too, the oil pours out, and, and a lot of people become very rich very fast. And this incredible new brilliant city, is shining city is built. And some of that money flowed into the African-American community. The primary black district in Tulsa was known as Greenwood. Uh, Africans, African-Americans made up roughly 10% of the population. So 100,000 people think 10,000 people in Greenwood and sort of a pie-shaped neighborhood emanating north out of downtown. But the thing is that Greenwood was really a remarkable place. Um, for such a small um, neighborhood, there were two theaters, the Dreamland and the Dixie. One sat 750, the other sat uh, 1,000. There were two African-American newspapers, two black schools, including a brand new brick high school. Um, there was an all-black hospital an all-black public library branch. This is no food desert. There are more than three dozen restaurants, black-owned restaurants, serving you know everything from a bowl of chili or a hot dog to steaks and chops with all the trimmings. There are two dozen grocery stores and meat markets. There are more than a dozen African-American physicians and surgeons. There are black dentists, black lawyers, black real estate agents and a wealth of stores, hardware stores, a dry cleaning establishment, pool halls, photography studios, on and on and on and on. And now much has been made of the term Black Wall Street, but in truth, while the term has its roots in the 20s, nobody called Greenwood Black Wall Street. And, and there's been some exaggeration of that too. I mean, there were, there were perhaps a dozen African-American families that are doing really well by national standards. They live in brand new one and two story wooden homes. They have automobiles, pianos, their daughters take dancing lessons, chandeliers, all of that. Then there's another 200 or so black families who are all entrepreneurs, businessmen, businesswomen, a lot of businesswomen. And they have smaller businesses, a dressmaking shop or, you know, a tailor shop or whatnot, but they deal simply all with black clientele. But 85% of Greenwood citizens, uh, you know, they all work in service jobs. Blacks weren't allowed to work in the oil industry. So they work in the white community as maids, servants, dishwashers, ditch diggers, cooks, on and on and on. Uh, they don't live in, they live in wooden shanties without electricity, running water or cramped apartments. They're not living the high style. But here's the thing. They are the engine that makes Greenwood grow because in a lot of black women, high in, high employment. So these black adults work in mothers and fathers, they work in the white community. They get a good paycheck, which would have been in cash. There wasn't a bank in Greenwood, but rather than spend that money downtown in the white owned stores where they're going to get disrespected and all that, they spend it in Greenwood. So that is the engine that allows Greenwood to flourish. And so there was a saying that a dollar would turn over 12 times in Greenwood before it left the community. So that's the engine that's going on. But but Greenwood is is more than that. It's it's also very vibrant intellectually, socially. There are book clubs, there are missionary circles, there are social clubs, all of that. 
W.E.B. Du Bois, one of the great founders of the NAACP, had come and spoke in Tulsa before the massacre. There are lectures, there are things like that. There are 12 churches as well. But also there is, Greenwood is, you know, there's this incredible brand new music that's getting invented at this moment and, and it's taking over the world, and that is jazz. And there are lots and lots of very important jazz musicians from Oklahoma, from Tulsa, Charlie Christian, who later, you know, in, helps to invent bebop with Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker. He's from Oklahoma, others. So this is all happening there too. So, um, and so Greenwood is this place where the American dream seems to be working for black people and it is working for some black people. But while this is all going on, the nation is in a very dangerous and dark period of race relations. And uh, the years right around World War I are some of the worst. This is, this is a time of the rebirth of the Ku Klux Klan. There've been a first Klan that existed in the South after the Civil War. It finally withers away and there's this brand new Klan that's invented in 1915. It's no longer Southern, it's national. The Klan runs the state government in New Jersey, in Oregon, in Indiana, eventually in Oklahoma. Uh, thousands of Klansmen march in full robes down Pennsylvania Avenue from the White House to the national capital. Um, this is an era and when uh, lynchings are still happening. While the number of lynchings has started to decline, the barbarity of lynchings is, has gone up. Uh, the sad fact of the matter is the United States is one of the few countries in the world at the time where human beings were burned at the stake. This is also an era, what everybody called black people, white people uh, alike, called race riots. There's normally some sort of a precipitating incident. Uh, in Chicago, the beaches along Lake Michigan were segregated. Uh, some black boys had built a raft in front of a black beach. The wind had blown it in front of a white beach. Whites started to stone the boys on the raft. Blacks and whites started to fight. That fighting on the beach spread to downtown, and then eventually white mobs started invading black neighborhoods or recently desegregated neighborhoods, targeting black homes, taking all their goods out of the street, destroying them, setting the homes on fire. You know, when order was restored, you know, three dozen people were dead. So these are happening all over the country. So how did black people respond to this? Well, in different ways. Some turned closer to God. You know, this world is not my home. Others put their faith in education, giving everything their children or grandchildren will get educated somehow to get out of this. But there's this new group on the scene, which is Black World War I veterans. You know, the American army is segregated in World War I. So you have all Black units fighting under white officers in France. And the Black units fight with incredible ferocity and valor and heroism. In fact, when the French government gives out its first Croix de Guerre, you know, their Medal of Honor, many of them went to black soldiers. And black soldiers in France were also treated better. They didn't have all this upfront racism that they faced in the United States at the time. Many of them thought, why am I fighting to make the world safe for democracy when I get none back home? And many black vets had the opinion, as spoken by one Chicago black vet, that said, you know, I ain't looking for trouble, but if it comes my way, I'm not dodging it either. All right. So all these winds are blowing through Tulsa as well, too. But there's something else, and that is crime. So remember, Tulsa is like this Las Vegas, Casablanca boomtown. Sure. But when you have a lot of people making money, you have a lot of crooks who show up trying to take it away from them. 
automobile theft was so common in Tulsa that the national insurance companies wouldn't sell policies in Tulsa because people had their cars getting stolen all the time. So there's a lot of there's a lot of crime, a lot of frustration. But in August of, of uh, 1920, there was a crime that changed everything. So very briefly, three teenagers hire a cab to take them out to a dance out in the country. But halfway there, one of the teenagers, an 18-year-old, everyone is white in the story, 18-year-old white kid named Roy Belton pulls out a gun, sticks it in the side of the cab driver. The cab driver pulls over the cab, pleads for his life, take my money, take my cab, take everything, just don't shoot me. Instead, Roy Belton shoots him twice in the stomach, kicks him out to you know his body to lie in the, the country road to die. The three teenagers take off with the cab. You know, but suddenly out of the blue, a farmer shows up in his farm truck, sees the bleeding cab driver, takes him to a hospital in Tulsa where he lingers for a few days. The police get a bead on this. They end up arresting Roy Belton. The other two teens, a, a male and a female, escape forever. They take Belton to the teenage, to the cab driver. He identifies him as the murderer. Okay. Roy Belton is then took put in a jail cell on the top floor of the Tulsa County Courthouse. Now, the shooting, meanwhile, is front page news in all the white newspapers. Most dastardly crime, this, you know, poor unarmed cab drivers shot by this bloodthirsty, you know, cruel thing. There's talks of there's never been a lynching in Tulsa, but there's talks they ought to be lynched. Uh, so, uh, and there's also stories that Roy Belton will escape the electric chair by pleading not guilty because of insanity. So the cab driver dies. The next day, a lynch mob forms outside the Tulsa County Courthouse. The Tulsa police force have absented themselves. They're nowhere to be seen. So members of the mob, meanwhile, have taken from the police impoundment lot the cab where, it had been, where the shooting had occurred. They park it in front of the uh, courthouse. Three members of the mob with bandanas over their faces, guns, go in and demand of the sheriff that they turn over Roy Belton. Roy Belton turns him over. He's put to the cab. And then the Tulsa police suddenly show up. But rather than trying to stop this lynching, instead they direct traffic. So there's a caravan of cars three miles long that drives across the river to where the shooting happened. There's an oak tree nearby. A rope is procured and Roy Belton is lynched, okay? All right, police do nothing to stop this. What's amazing though, is over the next three days in the white newspapers, this lynching is praised. It's praised by the white mayor, it's praised by the white chief of police, praised by the white sheriff, it's praised by the editors, the white daily newspapers saying that this was no, this was a righteous act, that the law-abiding citizens of Tulsa are tired with all these criminals, this shows the criminal element that we mean business. So you have a murder, a lynching, a public execution, it's praise. All right. The only dissenting voice comes from Tulsa's black newspapers. The Tulsa Star, the leading black newspaper, condemns the lynching, first of all, even though no African-Americans are involved. But it also says that the lynching of Roy Belton explodes the theory that a prisoner is safe in the top floor jail of the Tulsa County Courthouse. Okay. So now we fast forward nine months. We're on Monday, Memorial Day, May 30th, 1921. Another teenager, 19-year-old African-American named Roy Belton, walks into a building downtown Tulsa called the Drexel Building. 
He steps onto the elevator. The white elevator operator screams. Roy Belton runs out of the building. Okay, this much we know. But there's more to it. So Belton, uh, rather, um, Dick Rowland, the African-American, worked as a shoe shiner at a shine parlor in downtown Tulsa, white-owned and white-patronized. Uh, in 1978, I interviewed another shoe shiner who worked alongside him. And this wasn't a bad career choice because remember, these people are, these wildcatters are making strikes. They, in the morning, they were as poor as can be. By the afternoon, they're millionaires. And so they'd come in and buy a pair of new shoes, get them shined. Uh, they might tip you 50 cents or they might tip you $100. That's like $10,000 today. So, so you have these shoe shiners working there in this wide-owned, wide-patronized shine parlor, but there's no toilet facilities for them. So the owner arranged for his shoe shiners to walk a block down, block and a half down Main Street, get into the elevator at the Drexel building, ride it to the top floor where there was a cut, quote, colored bathroom. So this was something that Dick Rowland did presumably every day, nothing mm-hmm. Now, in those days, elevators weren't automatic. They weren't push button. You had an elevator operator who turned a wheel to raise and lower it. And they were normally young white women. And the elevator operator in the Drexel building is uh, 17-year-old Sarah Page. All right. So, But it was always hard to get the floor of the elevator and the actual floor to align properly. That's why if you ever see an old movie, you know, 1940s movie set in a, a Macy's or something, the elevator operators will always say, watch your step as you get out, because it could it'd go like that. And the elevator in the Drexel building, I, nor, I later interviewed another elevator operator. She told me it was notoriously hard to do. So what we think happened is that the floors weren't aligned. As Dick Rowland stepped on the elevator, he tripped. He shot out his hands to break his fall. He played football at Booker D. Washington High School. That he probably caught Sarah Page on the shoulder. She screams out of surprise, fright, whatever. Uh, he's now terrified. He runs out the building. Now, a white clerk in a clothing store on the first floor of the building hears the scream, runs out in the hallway, sees an African-American male running out and concludes that this is a rape attempt. All right. Mm. So he then, the police are called. Police officers show up. They don't appear to be particularly worried about it. They don't put out an all-points bulletin to arrest Dick Rowland. They don't, uh, you know, go, you know, uh, you know, jump into their squad car and go out to get him. The next morning, they do arrest him at his home in Greenwood, his mother's house. They bring him to the courthouse. He's put in a top-floor jail cell, okay? But the wheels of justice, even Jim Crow justice, seem to be rolling without a lot of worry. Sarah Page will refuse to press charges, Dick Rowland will be exonerated. However, a reporter for the Tulsa Tribune, the city's white afternoon newspapers, catches wind of this story. And what happens in the Tribune's first edition that day, there's a front page story that has this fantastic fictional write-up saying that Dick Rowland wouldn't tell his name to the police, called himself Diamond Dick, had a diamond stick pin. He had been seen stalking Sarah Page looking up and down to make sure that nobody was watching, that he'd gone in, had torn her clothes, scratched her face, and tried to rape her. Okay, But there was also in that newspaper an infamous now lost editorial titled Two Lynch Negro Tonight. So a year earlier, the white kid, Dick Rowland, had been lynched. Now the black kid is going to get lynched. Okay, So it's a call to arms. 
So the, the Tribune hits the streets at 3 o'clock, 3.30. By 4 o'clock, there's lynch talk on the streets of Tulsa that soon grows into action as a lynch mob now starts to gather outside of the courthouse. 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 whites, wow. including women and children as well. And they're there to get to get Dick Rowland and to lynch him. But there's a chain. And once again, the Tulsa police force is nowhere to be seen. They've absented themselves from this. Um, but there's a chain because there's a new sheriff, a, kind of a crusty ex-rancher named Willard McCullough. And he's decided there's not going to be a lynching on his watch. So when they demand that they turn him over, he says, hell no. He blockades the stairwell in the courthouse, disables the elevator, puts his deputies on, on top with high-powered, he's only has four or five with high-powered rifles. So there's sort of a standoff. Meanwhile, word now hits Greenwood that uh, an African-American is in mortal danger. Um, a black ex-vet jumps up on stage at the Dreamland Theater and says, shut this place down. There ain't going to be no lynching here. We're going to stop it. Others start gathering along the, what they call Deep Greenwood, which is where the Greenwood Commercial District was, trying to figure out what they're doing, what to do. Now, everybody has to remember there are no, there's no internet, there are no cell phones, there's no television. In fact, there are very few telephones in Greenwood itself. So a lot of this is rumor. So at about 7.30, 25 African-American World War I vets, many of whom have gone back to their homes to put on their two-year-old U.S. Army uniforms, all of whom are armed with rifles, pistols, and shotguns, get into cars, and they drive in a caravan to the courthouse. They get out of the cars. They march single file to the courthouse steps where the sheriff is waiting for them. They say, you know, we're here to help defend the prisoner if you want to. The sheriff says, get the hell out of here. They get back in their cars and drive back to Greenwood. But their, their arrival enrages the white mob. So members of the mob now go home to get their own guns, to get others to come. A group of mob members then breaks out and tries to break into the National Guard armory to get the high-powered rifles that are there. They are prevented doing so by a couple of armed National Guardsmen. But now everything is, rumors are flying across the city. The lynch mob continues to grow, 600, 700, 800, 1,000. When are we going to do this thing? When are we going to make this happen? Then finally, at about 9.30, a rumor hits Greenwood. It's a false rumor, but a rumor hits Greenwood that the whites are storming the jail. So this time, 75 African-American men, vets, all go downtown and repeat that first visit. And I have to point out this. I don't think any of them knew Dick Rowland by name. They had no idea who he was. Sure. But they are risking their lives to, pre to prevent a public murder. You know, they're not even trying to break him out of jail. They're just trying to make sure he has a trial. So once again, they drive down there, once again, get out of their cars, march single file. The sheriff tells them to leave. As they're leaving, an elderly white man approaches a black vet, says, where are you going with that gun? The vet says, I'm going to use it if I need to. White man says, like hell you are, give it to me. A struggle ensues, a shot goes off, and the massacre begins. Now, a lot happens, so we're at about 10 o'clock now, on Tuesday, May 31st. A lot happens immediately. The first thing is the white mob, they don't care about Dick Rowland anymore. They are now uh, obsessed with the racial bloodlust, and they're out to kill any African-American they can. 
So there's a shootout that happens between the vets and this mob there in the courthouse. We don't know how many people die there. Um, the father of one of my brother's best, older brother's best friends was a, a young physician in Tulsa at the time. He was in his office building a couple blocks away. He hears the shooting. He grabs his medical bag and he gets there and he says, I saw an African-American lying on the street. I tried to get to him. The mob prevented me from doing so. And mob members had pulled out their knives and they were stabbing this guy to death. Mm. Um, other mob members fan out and track down. Uh, we know a black woman was spotted nearby on Boulder Avenue. Whites jumped into a car and gunned her down. We know about black workers, like, you know, maybe janitors and cooks who who are unaware of any of this or getting off of work, who are chased down the streets downtown. We know about a black man that ran down a ha alley being chased by whites. He ran into the back of a white movie theater and uh, back door was on stage, sort of blinded by the projector, while another group of whites ran down the aisles and they murdered him with a shotgun on stage. He falls there. All right. So that's going on. We think, though, that the black vets were largely able to fight a retreating battle safely back to Greenwood, in part because there weren't a lot of streetlights in those days. They knew where they were going. They were able to get back. So now the Tulsa police shows up. The Tulsa police force shows up. But rather than stopping the mob members, sending them homes, quitting all this, instead, they do two things. The first is they deputize members of the mob uh, and give them special deputy ribbons. The second thing it is, is that police officers break into pawn shops and sporting goods stores to gain access to the guns that are sold there. And they start handing them out to mob members. Uh, we have one member of the mob related told us a police officer handed him a gun and said, get a gun and get a black person, not using those terms. So that happened. Wow. Um, then between like 10 o'clock and midnight, a few things happen. So there are Whites and automobiles will make drive-by shootings down residential streets in Greenwood, firing into living rooms and children's bedrooms and whatnot. Um, some African-Americans start to leave. Um, they've heard the shooting. They know the trouble is going on. And they start walking into the country, you know, navigating by starlight, getting out of there. There are some murders along the edges of the Black community. We know of an elderly couple who was praying before their bed when the whites came in, put pistols to the back of their heads and, and murdered them. And there's a couple fires set on the edges of the, of the black community, but there are white businesses nearby and those fires are put out. And then there was an attempt to interview, the, to invade this deep Greenwood area, whites crossing the railroad tracks, trying to get there. But blacks are able, black residents are able to defend it. They shoot out the streetlights. They know their terrain and they're able to keep whites from going. So what happens is about two o'clock in the morning, now on June 1st, everything quiets down. The city becomes quiet. And, and some African-Americans think it's all over. It's a great sigh of relief. You know, the sun's going to come up in a few hours. Life will go on. This will all sort itself out. What they didn't know is that whites are now organizing on the south side of town. So white men are going into all night speakeasies and cafes telling people to meet at this intersection and that intersection. Somebody will jump on the roof hood of a car and say, we're going to go in at dawn. Make sure you're plenty armed. Make sure you got ammunition and whatnot. 
So while African-Americans are starting to relax a little bit, meanwhile, white women are putting on another pot of coffee on the stove to keep everyone up, you know, ready for the invasion. So um, in the summer of 1975, I interviewed this survivor, Bill Williams, and, and he was Greenwood royalty. His parents, they owned the Dreamland Theater. They were the first black family to own an automobile in Tulsa. They owned their own garage where they fixed uh, automobiles. They also had a three-story building, brick building, the Williams building. On the first floor was a confectionery, you know, ice cream and candy sure, store. Yeah. On the third floor, they rented out to offices, to black dentists and lawyers. And on the second floor, the family had their apartment. And all that night, Bill Williams had helped his father, John. He helped, he reloaded his dad's 30-30 rifle and repeating shotgun, defending Greenwood. All right. So everything quiets down. What, what Bill told me in 1975 is right before dawn, he looked out the family apartment toward, across the tracks towards White Tulsa, and he said it looked like the Milky Way. And there were all these little points of light that he later realized were the cigarettes and cigars and pipes of thousands of whites wow. who had gathered, armed, waiting to invade Greenwood. All right. So the sun then comes up. There's a, a siren, like a factory whistle that goes off. We still haven't figured out exactly where it was, which was the signal for the invasion. And the invasion of Greenwood uh, begins. And it's uh, very briefly, it was fairly systematic. Um, any blacks who fight back uh, were overwhelmed and killed. All right. Others are fleeing, of course. Um, you know, any African-Americans who are found are then, quote, arrested by police officers, National Guard troops, members of the mob, and taken to these hastily created, quote, internment centers, quote, for their own safety. And there was some, some truth in that, not entirely. But what it did is it kept people from being able to pretend their home, protect their homes. So there was a survivor by the name of George Monroe, who's prominently featured in the groundbreaking. Um, he told me in the 1980s, you know, his parents, uh, they owned a roller skating rink in Greenwood. They also had their own home. And when when the invasion began, here mom and dad and the kids, they're trying to figure out what to do. And they decide that the father is m most at likely at risk to being killed. So he takes off while the mother stays with the kids and uh, to try to defend their home. And so the whites come and, of course, she's unarmed. And she says, look, we haven't done anything to anybody. Please spare our home. The mob members tell her to shut up. They uh, and haul her off. The kids sort of break up. George, who's just about three at the time, and his older sister, Judy, run back into the family home, and they hide under their parents' bed. And what George told me is that beneath the bed, he could see the shoes of the white men as they entered wow. the, the bedroom. One of them stepped on his finger. He almost cried out, but his sister, Judy, threw her hand over his mouth. The whites didn't notice him. George told me he could hear them rifling through the drawers of the parents' dresser looking for money or jewelry. And then he said before they left, they put the set the curtains on fire in the bedroom. George and Judy were able to escape. But, but this happens everywhere. So once people are removed from a, a building, a house, a business, whites then looted it and then set it on fire. And this goes house by house, building by building, block by block. Now, African-Americans are fighting back. There are some hot firefights that go on, black men and women trying to defend their homes and businesses. But they're remember, they're just overwhelmed. They're outnumbered 10 to 1 by the sure, whites to yeah. begin with, and more so on, on that morning. 
and they have a new problem. Uh, the whites uh, have two machine guns. Uh, one had been taken from the American Legion post, put on top of a grain elevator that overlooked uh, Greenwood. They had opened fire. The local all-white National Guard units had also opened fire, uh, aiding and abetting the rioters as well. And finally, there's a threat from the air. So there weren't a lot of airplanes in Tulsa in 1921. We think maybe five or six. And think of biplanes, World War I era, yep. wooden planes that are wrapped in canvas, open cockpit, um, owned by oil companies and rich oil millionaires, things like that. But we have very strong evidence that at least one of those airplanes, a co-pilot, we believe, lit sticks of dynamite and dropped them on Greenwood. So making Tulsa the first um, city you know, bomb from the air, American city bomb from the air. And this goes on block by block. Um, and, and, you know, white women are going into well-to-do black people's homes and coming out with furs and jewelry, right, to pull up trucks to a black home and haul off furniture and pianos, all of that. Meanwhile, the governor in Oklahoma City been, had been notified that previous night um, he had dispatched state troops from Oklahoma City to arrive in Tulsa. They get there in the mid middle of the morning on June 1st. Uh, martial law is declared, but it's too late. Uh, Greenwood has been destroyed. Um, 35 square blocks, more than 1,000 African-American homes and businesses have been reduced to ashes. The entire Black population uh, is those who, who are alive, uh, are now under armed guard in these internment camps at the baseball park, the fairgrounds, municipal auditorium, whatnot, where they will remain for several days. Uh, and and Greenwood is gone. Phew. Are you exhausted after? <laughs> I'm not exhausted. So let let me just let me just continue quickly with a couple of things. Then I'll stop. Yeah, yeah, go for it. So, um, so what happens is, you know, the state troops come, martial law is declared, order is restored. Um, but meanwhile, the white city fathers in Tulsa had a big problem, and they had a big problem because. The Tulsa race massacre was national and international news. It was on the front page of the New York Times, the papers in Chicago and Los Angeles. It made the Times of London, made the Times of India. And the city fathers who were trying to boost the city, bring in more people, they realized they have a big PR problem because all these stories of killings, murders, you know, railroad service interrupting all that. So what they do is they, they tell the world the white world, the rest of the world, that uh, that the citizens, the white citizens are ashamed of what happened and that they are going to rebuild the black community. They don't do that. Instead, what they do is they pass a restrictive fire ordinance to try to steal the land where the black business district is, all these theaters and restaurants. Sure. And because they want to use that to build a new railroad terminal. Um, meanwhile, a group of black lawyers in town led by B.C. Franklin, whose son, John M. Franklin, later a famous uh, African-American historian, um, he's telling black people, ignore it, rebuild anyway, find scraps of wood, do anything you can, rebuild. And, and he and some other lawyers take the city to court and they eventually are able to overturn the fire ordinance. African-Americans eventually come back to Greenwood, all right? Here's the amazing thing. A couple of things. First, the wealthiest black families, because there wasn't a bank in Greenwood, all of their money were in white banks downtown. 
So they have access to that, which will help allow them to rebuild. But here you have thousands of black people who've lost everything. Mm. And this is amazing. Within days of the riot, they go back to work in their jobs in the white community. Wow. Most people who were trying to kill them less than a week earlier, because they've got to put food on the table. So they go back to work. And there's so much money in Tulsa that Greenwood is eventually going to rebuild. Now, the American Red Cross comes in. It's the first time the American Red Cross has ever responded to a, quote, man-made disaster. And they stay for nearly a year. They donate they tents, building materials. They create a new black hospital. They do a lot to, to refurbish things. But money starts to flow into Tulsa. But it's black Tulsans who rebuild their community. Meanwhile, a all-white grand jury is convened. <coughs> they interview blacks and whites alike. But in their grand jury report, they blame black people for the massacre, saying there was no lynch spirit. There was no lynch mob. This was an uprising by black people who caused this. So what happens is no white person ever goes to jail, uh, uh, spends a day in jail for any of the murders, lootings or, you know, uh, assaults, uh, larceny that happened in Tulsa. As far as you, I know there's no, well, I assume there's no way to know exactly how many people, how many black people were murdered, but what's the, what's the estimate? Right. So um, here's the reality. If anybody tells you how many people they know died in the Tulsa race massacre, they're lying because they don't know. So we do have records that hundreds of people, whites and black, receive medical attention. We think, I think that reasonable estimates for the number of people who died Total number ranged from 100 to perhaps as high as 300. But we don't know what that number, whether it's 99 or 301. We don't, but we also don't know what the racial breakdown is. Now, I believe that far more African Americans were killed than, than whites. But uh, remember W.D. Williams, that survivor I talked to, when I was getting ready in the, the probably about 1980 or 81 to to finishing the manuscript of the book that became Death in a Promised Land, I was trying to figure out what to call this thing because there's not a good word. You know, everybody called them race riots at the time and we all right. knew what that was called, but the term race riot became applied to different things. Uh, it'd been called a disaster, uh, you know, a pogrom, uh, the Tulsa event, the race war and all that. And I was playing with the idea of, of massacre, race massacre. And I went to W.D. Williams, I said, what about if I called this the Tulsa Race Massacre? And he said, hell no. He said, we got as many of them as they got of us. So amongst wow. a certain generation, and there were other survivors who felt that as well, too. I, I think in the end, there are far more black casualties than white casualties. But white casualties existed. There's no question about it. We know some. So we have like 40 names of people that we can definitely identify as being killed. But the number is going to be higher, and, and to this day, we don't know what it is. In the the this event that happened on May thirty one, June one of nineteen twenty one, that you just so brilliantly described, and such a tragic. I mean, I just I, I felt like I was drinking from a historical fire hose, and also just like on the verge of tears the entire time. What a horrific thing that started, you know, as from Dick tripping in an elevator, um, just wild. But it still ranks as one of the single worst incidents of racial violence in American history. Oh, I think it is the worst. You, you I don't think, think it is the worst. Yeah. I mean, 
because we know, I mean, more than 100 people were killed, but you also had 35 square blocks. If you look at, you know, when I started this, it was impossible to find photographs of the massacre. And in part because the the chief of police in the week after the massacre instructed his, his officers to go to the white-owned photography studios and confiscate photographs, confiscate negatives. We know that as late as the 1970s, there was a box of photos in Tulsa Police Headquarters that has since never been found again, has disappeared. But you can find photos. They're all over now. I mean, all the known photos of the massacre are easily available. Anybody can go to the Tulsa Historical website or the University of Tulsa website and see them. But if you look at some of these panoramics, it just looks like Hiroshima or Frankfurt, you know, after Allied bombing in, in, in World War II. Nothing, we've never seen the scale of destruction and deaths like this. Yeah, so so I, point taken. So as we begin to wrap up here, I'm so grateful for your time. Let's call it what it is. This is the worst, you know, instance of racial violence in American history. And yet, again, not enough people know about it. And again, more as you pointed out earlier, films are being made and books are being written. So more people than ever, but still there's all these, I'm just fascinated by, you know, you mentioned at the, at the, toward the beginning of our conversation that Americans are interested in history, but, but, but I believe that isn't as true of younger people today. And we have these interesting things happening in the education system, right? This is not a secret. We've got maybe dozens of states that are beginning to ban books that are just t tellings of history. They are, they are talking about history. And so we have this new, it sort of this wave through our education system. It seems maybe it's not new. I'm, I'm young enough to, maybe that's an ignorant statement, but it seems like we're, we're ignoring history instead of facing it, reckoning with what we've done as a country, maybe not, not, maybe not physically, but these are things that we've done and our forefathers and mothers have done because that's the only way we change, right? That's the only way we fix what's ahead and what we're dealing with now, these you know, mass shootings and homophobia and racism. The only way we fix it is by reckoning with what we've done and where we've come from. But there seems to be a, a great desire in the education system to ignore that. So as someone who has not ignored it, who has faced it for decades and has written brilliant works based on historical facts and tons of research, what word do you have for us? How do we fight against what seems to be happening in our country right well, now? Well, you know, you know, if you love your, you know, I mean, look, American history can be a great tool for all of us. Look, the history has happened. Okay. It's happened. It's done. Yeah. All right. And, uh, None of us can live our parents' lives, our grandparents' lives. They lived in their era, and and uh, they made the choices, good or bad, for what it was. All right. So listen, the uh, um, it, this whole effort to restrict stuff is to create a fairy tale version of the American past yeah. to support certain political goals. I can tell you, as a graduate of public schools in Oklahoma, that Oklahoma school children can handle the history of slavery. They can handle the history of the Tulsa race riot. They know that they are not personally responsible for any of these things. They get that, okay? And uh, look, you know, for such a young country, our country has given incredible gifts to the world, absolutely incredible gifts that uh, need to be taught and they need to be celebrated. But we have to celebrate our, our tragedies and our failures as well, too. That's the only way that we can learn from the past. So if you really love your country, then study its history and try to learn from it and tell the whole story and not just some 
edited propaganda version. Yeah, super helpful. Um, I think this is the last question. You've been so generous with your time. But as we wrap up here, you know, you mentioned at the beginning that you called yourself a patriot. Uh, a little bit about my history that you don't know because we've just met today is that I spent most of my upbringing outside the U.S. My dad is an immigrant, and when I was 9 or 10, we moved. I'm one of 12 kids. We moved this whole big family back to Guatemala where he was born, and I lived there for 10 years. And then I spent the next six years. I was of I was at college age then, and I spent six years traveling the world. And it was only then that I came back, but I've never quite felt at home here. So yes, I'm, I was born in upstate New York, um, but I've never felt at home here. And I've spent uh, uh, half my life outside the U.S. So I don't have this huge patriotic you know, desire. And frankly, with, with everything that's going on, I find it hard to feel very patriotic. But you said with, with passion, I'm a patriot. And you obviously believe you, you've said you've alluded multiple times to you believe in this country and we've offered so much. And I, I believe all that as well. We have offered so much to the world. So encourage, you know, talk to me as we wrap up uh, uh, a, a younger person that wants to leave the U.S. but also doesn't want to leave the U.S. because I do believe there's something special here. I want to invest my my money and time and energy and career here, raising my kids here to fight for what this country could still become. So what is it about this country that you still at 60, you know, plus years old, having written about the things you've written, having studied about the things you've studied, why do you still believe in this country? What do you see about this country that I need to grab a hold of that will sustain me for decades to come doing the the, the work here as someone who gives a damn, someone who wants to leave the not just this country but this planet better than I found it? When it's my time. Well, to you go. know, uh, you know, as as Martin Luther King and others said, the arc of justice is long, but it, it it bends towards you know freedom and liberty. Look, the bloods of the blood of our foremothers and forefathers are across this land of people who did not quit, who fought for the ideals, uh, and you know the idea. Look, it's you know we we've been imperfect from the start, but you know. I, I mean, even if you take a document like the Declaration of Independence, obviously, which, you know, ignores slavery, blah, 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 on and on and on, um, you know, but there was an ideal of freedom that's there. You know, when the protesters at Tiananmen, when they made their great move, they, were, they had statues of the Statue of Liberty. The idea of America is a very strong one. It's, a, it's made a great contribution to the notions of freedom. The civil rights movement in the United States has, has changed the way that you see nonviolent movements around the world. So um, what if Martin Luther King had just quit? What if the SNCC workers had just quit? What if all these people had just given up? I mean, we have great, um, this is our country. We've built it, we've fought for it, and we need to make it better, but we're not gonna go backwards. And the solution is not to lose heart. The solution is not to quit and to leave. The solution is to toughen up and let's get to work and let's get things going in the right direction again. This is, we've never, I mean, we have never been more divided since the 1850s on the verge of the Civil War. Uh, a Civil War is not going to be a win for anybody. And uh, we need to avoid that if we can. But we need to get to the polls. We need to get people to vote. Um, the number of people who do not vote in this country is absolutely outrageous. We need to get them and we need to change this. Because if you look, and how, if you look at the polls of what Americans believe, you know, it's fairly reasonable. 
you know, and uh, it's those things are getting undermined and getting under ta- and getting attacked, and we need to stop that. So I would tell young people, bear down, look into the lives of your heroes, look what they did, and look with the fact that they didn't stop either. That's very encouraging. Thank you. I, I'm constantly seeking those, you know, those encouragements because I I do believe there's something there, even though it's hard, and especially in weeks like this, Buffalo, Uvalde, and all these different things that are happening. Like it's hard to see that. But you're right. The Dr. King was exactly right. It it is bending toward justice, but it it can't bend toward justice if people don't do uh, anything. Not that it's wrong for people to you know become expats and take off to other countries. That's fine. But it, it, it does it does meet for it to bend toward justice. It's going to mean many of us staying here to do the right thing over the long haul. Uh, so the book is the groundbreaking. Uh, thank you for doing an amazing work here. I really I read it. I emailed you. I said we've got to talk about this. This is an incredible book. And um, so thank and it's you. It's now for, available in paperback. Now available in paperback. Week. I've already told a bunch of people about it. I will continue through this podcast conversation to tell people about it. Uh, this has been truly incredible. Thank you for spending time with us. Well, thanks so much. And if people you know, want to reach out to me, I'm easy to find. Just look for Scott Ellsworth at the University of Michigan. But um, you know, if you enjoy the book, and, and I wrote this book also in part to, you know, there's other Tulsa's and you know, we have, you know, every American city has got something in the past. And I wanted to show what it takes to get these things out and, and, and in the open. So uh, this isn't just a book about one city. It's a book about all of our cities. I love it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Nick. Dear friends and damn givers, thank you so much for showing up, for spending some time with Scott and me this week. To find links for everything mentioned in today's conversation and to keep up with all things Let's Give a Damn, visit letsgiveadam.com. Please share this episode with a friend. Please leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and please show up next week. Most of all, we have many more incredible conversations coming your way. Chad Snavely, Jess Collins, and the incredible team at Sound On Studios made this episode. The music is by our friend Propaganda. You can reach out to me anytime and for any reason at hello at letsgiveadam.com. I love you all. Be safe. Keep giving a damn. Bye for now.